In one of Calvin and Hobbes' cartoon strips, Calvin and Hobbes are lying underneath the shade of a tree on a hot summer day. And Calvin, the hyperactive little boy, says, what if there is no heaven? What if this is all we get? And Hobbes the tiger answers, well, if this is all we get, I guess we'll just have to accept it. And Calvin replies, yeah, but if I'm not going to be rewarded for my good deeds, I want to know now. <laughs> well, next time is daylight savings time as it comes to an end, and uh, we will get that hour back that we've been saving up for all summer. But the question here this morning is, what turns our clocks? What motivates us to do the things that we do? What motivates us to live godly lives? What would motivate the believer in Jesus Christ to obey him and uh, face the open hostility of the world? Motivation is a funny thing. When I think of motivation, I think of a man by the name of Larry Walters. He was a 33-year-old man who decided he wanted to see his hometown of San Pedro, California from a new perspective. So on July 2nd, 1982, he went down to the local army surplus store and he bought 45 used weather balloons. That afternoon, he strapped himself into a lawn chair to which several of his friends tied the now helium-filled weather balloons, and he named his flying machine Inspiration. He took with him something to drink, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and a BB gun, thinking that once he decided he wanted to come down, he could shoot the balloons out one at a time, and he would gently ascend to the earth. Walters, who assumed the balloons would lift him about 100 feet in the air or so, was caught off guard when the chair soared to more than 15,000 feet into the sky. Smack right dab in the middle of the air traffic pattern of Los Angeles International Airport. Because Larry was too frightened to shoot out any of the balloons, he stayed airborne for almost two hours and forced the airport to shut down its runways for much of the afternoon. He was in contact with REACT. REACT was a citizens band monitoring organization who recorded the conversation. React, what information do you wish me to tell the airport at this time as to your location and your difficulty? Larry, uh, the difficulty is uh, this was an unauthorized balloon launch and uh, I know I'm in federal airspace and uh, I'm sure my ground crew has alerted the proper authorities but uh, could you just call them and tell them I'm okay? After another 45 minutes in the sky, Larry finally was able to shoot out several of the balloons, but then he accidentally dropped his BB gun. <laughs> <coughs> he descended slowly until the balloons got caught uh, in their wires of a power line, and he caused a 20-minute blackout in Long Beach neighborhood. Walters was then able to climb to the ground. Soon after, he was safely grounded and sighted by the police, Reporters asked him three questions. Were you scared? Yes. Would you do it again? No. Why did you do it? Because you just can't sit there. <laughs> when it comes to the Christian life, what turns our clocks? What motivates us to do the things that we do? Irma Bombeck, as you probably know, was an American humorist who achieved great popularity for writing about her life in suburban America. But her motivation in life extended well beyond her wit and humor. She once said, when I stand before God at the end of my life, I hope 
that I would not have a single bit of talent left and could say, I used everything you gave me. When the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ stood on the Mount of Olives and lifted up his hands and blessed his disciples, his departing words to his disciples motivated them. It motivated them to fulfill his will, to obey him, no matter what the cost. No matter what the difficulties they would face, no matter what excuses they might have. So this morning we come to a truth of God's word that's one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension where he was lifted up, he blessed them, he was lifted up and a cloud received him out of the sight of his disciples. But it would seem that as a whole, the Christian community gives very little thought to the ascension of Jesus Christ these days. There are those who, out of unbelief, don't believe it. There are those, maybe out of indifference, who don't give very much thought to it. It was a very popular theme in Renaissance art. I just went on Google Images and typed in the ascension, and you know they came up all over the place, including that huge statue over Rio de Janeiro with the Christ with his hands, you know, many people don't realize that's the standard picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And if you come from what we call a high church background, the Feast of the Ascension is on the liturgical calendar, coming 40 days after Easter and 10 days after Pentecost. Traditionally and historically, the four main holidays of the Christian calendar, which we don't set back, we set the time back this week, I've got that, <laughs> are Christmas, Easter, the Feast of the Ascension, and Pentecost. Those are the four main ones. But in the last hundred years or so, the Ascension has fallen into theological disfavor, attacked by some, forgotten by most. In the 20th century, early 20th century, we witnessed an attempt to what they call demythologize the Gospels. Science and technology were supposedly replacing supernaturalism. The gospel stories, it was claimed, were nothing more than imaginative stories that were intended to teach theological truth. But what was most important is what you learned about God, what you learned about Christ, what you learned about yourself, what you learned about humankind. The stories were just the carriers of these, but the stories were not actual events. And of course, the first biblical truths to bite the dust were the virgin birth, and the resurrection of the Jesus Christ from the dead. And if Jesus was like any other man who was born and died like any other man, then there was no reason to even mention his ascension into heaven. Rudolf Boltmann, a German theologian, was the main instigator of this kind of demythologizing the Gospels, taking all the supposed myth, as he saw it, out of the Gospels, so that one could get down to what he called the core, the kernel, of, of, of the truth. We used to say in uh, seminary that Boltman missed the point. <laughs> but so have a lot of other country, or, or, or Christians and people today have missed the point, or it's become a, a forgotten truth. Sometimes I just talk that way. But here's the point that can't be missed. The gospel is too incredible not to be true. If you really want people to believe something, if you're going to make something up, so you could teach whatever truth it was, you don't start out with a young girl who never had any contact with a man in a sexual way and yet became pregnant. 
And that child grows up to perform miracle after miracle. He could calm the sea, raise the dead, heal with a touch. He was brutally crucified on a cross and came back to life on the third day after he died. Then he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And then he was taken up into a cloud into heaven almost 200 years or 2,000 years before Yuri Gagarin was the first man to be brave enough to sit on top of a rocket and go into to heaven. It makes no sense whatsoever for the gospel not to be true. And on top of that, you have the testimony of eyewitness accounts compiled by Dr. Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John, and the testimonies of countless Christians throughout the ages who have given their very lives for the very sake of the truth. It's too incredible not to be true. But as soon as we start messing with the credibility of the gospel, we have gutted our hearts of the motivation that it takes to serve Christ whom we love. In other words, I'm not going to serve a myth. I'm not going to serve a Jesus of whom I'm not fully and totally convinced he can deliver on his promises. If it's a myth, I'm going to be with Calvin on this. I want to know if we're not going to get the rewards, <laughs> you know, how should I live now? If this is all we get, if Jesus can't deliver, I want to know now. And whether it's from the modernist attempt to demythologize the Gospels that has affected countless churches and countless Christians, or, or whether people just aren't fully convinced about who Jesus is and what he has done and continues to do, we need the motivation that comes and that God intends from a deep understanding of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ is one of the essential truths of the Gospel, and it's a primary motivator for doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians in obeying our Lord and actually experiencing on a daily basis how he works in us and through us to fulfill his purposes. But how many churches and Christians are dying on the vine? Because they are unconvinced of the true vine, Jesus Christ, or don't have the motivation that is needed for Christ to work among them and through them. I think I set a record this morning on the length of the introduction to the message, but it's just indicative of how important the ascension is. This is something we absolutely must get a hold of, something of which we must be absolutely convinced, because it's something that must motivate us, because the very life, the very health, the effectiveness of each one of us and of Grace Baptist Church is at stake. So please turn to the first chapter of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus has commissioned his followers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Then Luke records in the ninth verse of chapter 1, And after Jesus had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, from the 12th verse of this first chapter, we know that this happened on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, if you were to look at Israel today, depending on which direction you're looking, you have the temple and the temple mount over here, and then there's a deep valley in between. That's the Kidron Valley. And then there's the long, expansive slope of what we call the Mount of Olives. And at the top of Mount of Olives is a little place called Bethphage, and just a little farther than that is a town called Bethany, of which uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, lived there. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. 
And uh, at the end of Luke's gospel, he tells us that Jesus' disciples went up the mountain in the direction towards Bethany, and there on the mount he blessed them and was carried up into heaven. Now there's one thing that's worth noting here, because their route backtracked the same route that Jesus had taken about six weeks earlier. It's the exact same route, but going the other direction of Jesus' triumphal entry into to Jerusalem. Jesus had come down the path. He started at Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha. When they got to Bethphage, they got the donkey. Jesus sat on the donkey. They're coming down the hill. The shouts of Hosanna, not hallelujah, Hosanna in that case. And that triumphal entry led to the death of Jesus on the cross. And now about five and a half weeks later, which is a very short period of time, Jesus and his disciples take that same path the other direction. And it leads to Jesus Christ's glorious ascent into heaven. It says that Jesus was taken up in a cloud. And if you got your Bible concordance out and started looking for clouds in the Bible, you'd come across the pillar of cloud that led the people of Israel in the wilderness. You'd come across the pillar of cloud that when the glory descended at the tent of meeting, when Moses was in there in God's presence. The pillar of cloud that descended upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. The, the pillar of cloud that descended upon the temple of God at the dedication that Solomon built. Jesus was taken up, in other words, in glory into the presence of the Father. Into the presence of the Father. This is important to note too because Heaven is not somewhere, someplace out there, second star to the right. I hope we can find that someday. That, that's where God lives. As the disciples were standing on the Mount of Olives, they saw Jesus suddenly ascend into a cloud, and they never saw him again. He was enveloped in the cloud. He didn't just disappear. The cloud received him out of their sight. And so Jesus wasn't the first cosmonaut just to go into outer space. He didn't go out to some other planet. He stepped into a different dimension of existence. He stepped into the spiritual dimension, the spiritual kingdom which surrounds us on every side. In other words, Jesus is not far away, and neither is the throne of God. You ever thought, we read this morning, let us draw near to the throne of God. When's the spaceship going to be ready? No. <laughs> we just need to come into his presence. And the Holy Spirit is not far from us, who imparts God's power. In fact, the Holy Spirit is where? He is in us. And so on this truth of the ascension of Jesus Christ, I want to focus on three aspects that are powerful motivators for us today. First of all, the ascension of Jesus Christ proclaims Christ's triumph. And in all of these, I'm going to read a lot of scripture passages. Most of them are noted at least by address in your bulletin this morning if you want to check them out later. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, that Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, has gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And then the writer to the Hebrews adds in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 or 12 through 14. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The writer to the Hebrews here is quoting the 110th Psalm, which proclaims basically 
the Lord Jesus wins. The Lord Jesus wins. Whoever tries to discredit him, whoever denies him, whoever rejects him, whoever attacks him or attacks those who profess to him. Remember when Paul or Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus and the resurrected Jesus came to him. What did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You mess with my church, you're messing with me. You persecute my church, you persecute me. ISIS is going to hear that message. They're going to hear that message. And they will be subjugated and judged at the feet of Jesus Christ. Christ is in the place of exaltation and victory. And when he returns, he will overcome every enemy and establish his righteous kingdom. And that those who have trusted in him don't need to fear, for they have been, we have been, perfected forever. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Believers are complete in him. Colossians 2.10. And we have a perfect standing before God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So first of all, the ascension proclaims Christ's triumph. Secondly, the ascension established Christ's advocacy, his advocacy. Christ's tri Christ triumph tells us a lot about what is going to happen. His advocacy assures us as believers of what Jesus is doing now, what he's doing now on our behalf. We see this in the book of Hebrews again, verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. For us. If you're taking notes, write for us. He appears in the presence of the Father. He is there on our behalf. We're not depending, as they did in the Old Testament, of some high priest on earth who annually goes into the Holy of Holies into a temporary sanctuary. We depend on the heavenly high priest who has entered once and for all into the eternal sanctuary. And there he represents us for God, before God, and he always will. The Apostle John tenderly wrote to believers, My little children, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That word translated advocate is the familiar word parakletos, which Jesus used the word parakletos to refer to his Holy Spirit, one who comes alongside to give aid. We had an example of it this week. When I called Les Schwab and Emmett, they called Les Schwab and Ridian. Ridian called me and I called back. And a parakletos, one who comes alongside to give aid, put on the stupid little donut tire on Elizabeth's car and took her over to Les Schwab. That's a parakletos. In the case of the Holy Spirit, it's one who comes alongside us to be a comforter, an encourager, a counselor. In the case of Jesus, it's one who speaks and acts on our behalf as in a court of law, as in judgment. In the case of Jesus, it's one who is called Jesus Christ the righteous who speaks on your behalf. When you are in him, when you are accused on account of your sins, when you may be found to be unworthy to merit mercy or release, Jesus the righteous says, he's one of mine. 
She's with me. These are mine, and I will not allow a single one to perish. Not a one. And thirdly, the ascension of Jesus Christ establishes the conditions under which the church is called to serve. Right before the ascension, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus had told his disciples who were gathered in the upper room on that night who was betrayed that it would be to their advantage that they go away. They couldn't understand that. How can it be our advantage? This Jesus whom we've walked with, we've lived with, he's taught us, he's corrected us, he's loved us. How can it be to our advantage that he is going away? Because Jesus said, I am sending the parakletos, the comforter, the encourager, the Holy Spirit who will be with you forever. We are not left to ourselves. We are not left as orphans. In ascending to the right hand of the Father, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit and the power and the presence and the protection of Jesus Christ himself. This is the sphere in which we serve Christ. With his power, in his presence, by the Holy Spirit. With his power, in his presence, by the Holy Spirit. And while standing on the Mount of Olives, Jesus' followers need a little bit more encouragement because we see they needed some more motivation because this is what the angels addressed in verses 10 and 11. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now it's to be expected that these disciples would stand there gawking at the sky because they had just witnessed something that's very tremendous, something that's uh, very incredible. But the angels quickly bring them back down to earth. Jesus had commanded them to wait in Jerusalem. He'd given a specific can until you are clothed from power on high, until you receive the Holy Spirit. And now they're just standing there, gazing at the sky. I'm sure the apostles' hearts were pounding. Their eyes were wide as saucers. God had powerfully underscored his son's final words to his church. And here the angels questioned the disciples who just stood there, underscoring that the truth conveyed through the event should now resound in the inner chambers of, of every believer's heart because the ascended Christ was to be the confidence He's to be the flame for obedience, for following Christ, for doing what he tells us to do. And having ascended, he now intercedes for the church. He sends his Holy Spirit so he can be his witnesses. And the angels underscore that this same Jesus will come just the same way that you saw him going to heaven. The, the Greek word translated come is the word parousia. Maybe you've heard that. You know, we, oftentimes instead of talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, you don't find those words second coming in scripture anyplace. It, it's just the parousia, his, his coming. But in today's world, men are working feverishly to solve the world's problems. Look what's going on with Ebola. Everybody's got a different idea how we can solve this or not solve this or, or whatever it's doing. And we see what's going on in the Middle East. And, you know, we can just go on and on. And we've seen in our study in the book of Daniel that the world is not going to be able to solve these problems. But in fact, things are going to get a lot worse. 
The crisis will get so bad that human life will no, lo no longer be able to exist on earth. Isn't that a happy thought? No longer will human life be able to exist on earth. The only thing standing between us and complete annihilation and rescue will be the parousia of the Lord Jesus Christ. The teaching given by the angels is clearly meant to motivate the church to mission. Jesus is coming, and you don't know when, so what? Get going. Obey what he told you to do. So let me ask it this way. How does your life stack up? How, how does my life stack up? How do we stack up as Grace Baptist Church? When I used to drink a lot of RC Cola, in fact, at uh, First Baptist Church in Payette, they, one pastor's appreciation Sunday, they gave me a certificate congratulating me on drinking my millionth can of RC Cola. <laughs> but when I drank a lot of RC Cola, my theme was never let any RC go to waste. And the kids hated it when we'd get into the car and it'd be a hot day and there's an RC can sitting between the seats of the car and I would pick it up, kind of smell it, and then I would taste it to see if it was any good. And they go, no, Dad, don't do that. <laughs> That's horrible. Our lives can be like a can of RC that has been sitting around in the car for some time. Or the Christian life can be exciting. It can be effervescence. It can be like a fresh, cold RC right out of the fridge, only better. So I want to briefly give you four applications under the heading, until he comes. Until he comes. Instead of standing around and waiting for Jesus to come, instead of stagnating, stagnating, becoming stale, how can we live now in the light of the ascension of Jesus Christ? First of all, because of Christ's ascension, believers may live in security in an insecure world. Let me just make it simple. What's the greatest form of security? In a couple of words, it's unconditional love. It's to know that we are loved unconditionally. We can do nothing, you can do nothing to make God love you more, and you can do nothing to make God love you less. He loves us unconditionally with an everlasting love. No matter what we go through, Nothing can inflict us except after it passes through his loving, tender hands. Romans 8, 28, or 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no other religion in the world that can make those promises to us. Years ago, I used to be brave enough to sing one of the songs that the Imperials, the Southern Gospel Group, sang. And I say brave enough because the chorus goes like this. No, it won't be old Buddha that's sitting on the throne. And it won't be old Muhammad that's calling us home. And it won't be Hare Krishna that plays the trumpet tune. And we're going to see the sun. Not Reverend Moon, not Reverend Moon. <laughs> These guys, they taught their stuff, they did their thing, but we serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who's ascended to the throne at the right hand of God the Father. And secondly, in application, 
Because of Christ's ascension, believers have comfort in the midst of suffering. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I could spend two more months on that particular verse, but we've got to go on. Thirdly, because of Christ's ascension, believers have the power to be involved in mission, to be involved in what Jesus commanded us to do. Jesus is coming again. That's a powerful motivator. And whether he comes to us or we go to him, we want to live a life that is pleasing to him. I keep coming back to the book of Hebrews. The benediction in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 reads, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus did not leave us to ourselves to do that which is pleasing in his sight. He gave us his Holy Spirit. And lastly, because of Christ's ascension, we have the opportunity of salvation. More than the opportunity for your believers, but I'll talk about that in a second. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore he is able to save forever... Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is God doing, Jesus doing right now? He lives forever to make intercession for us. We are saved forever. We have that opportunity, as it were, to be saved forever. What about other people? What about those who are not? You see, implied in this, there's a sense of urgency among the first disciples of Jesus Christ that we often miss today. The Apostle Paul wrote, Behold, now is the time of salvation. Let's start that over. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. They didn't live like there was going to be a tomorrow when men may be saved. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, told about the time that a man came up to him after an evangelistic meeting and he told Mr. Moody that he just wasn't ready to believe this. He wasn't ready to receive Christ and Moody told him to go home and think about it and to come back to the meeting the next night. That very night, most of Chicago burned on account of Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicking over a lantern. There was no next meeting. There was no next night. Moody never saw that man again. And Moody was convicted, and he said he never again would tell anybody, go and think about it. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Alistair Begg tells about growing up near Harper Memorial Church in Glasgow, Scotland. The church in his neighborhood was named after a Baptist pastor by the name of John Harper, John Harper and his family were going to go to Moody Church in Chicago to preach a series of evangelistic meetings. 
and they boarded on the ship called Titanic. Titanic. And while they were getting in the lifeboats, John Harper asked a man if that man knew Jesus. And the man said, no. And Harper gave his seat to the man and said, you take my place because I am ready to meet my Savior and you are not. What would you give up? Even after jumping into the freezing water, witnesses says that John Harper continued to preach the gospel until he was overcome and died in the water. Do we live with that kind of urgency in our witness? You know, in thinking about this, what if each one of us prayed every day as we decided to go about our day and we were convicted, each one of us, say for example, by the first of the year, that God would be faithful to use each one of us in an instrumental way to lead one more person to Jesus Christ and be used of him to effectively disciple them and have that privilege of teaching them the word of God and, and have that privilege of fellowshipping with them as part of Grace Baptist Church. And I only say the first of the year because as soon as I said that, you go, that's not very far away. I don't know if I can do that, but I did that purposefully because that was the urgency that Jesus wanted us to have in telling others about Jesus Christ. That's the way we should live every day. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, our hearts break for the world. We hear of the violence, the unjustness, the indifferences towards you. We all know people who are lost. Father, I'd help, ask that you would help us to lay claim to the promise of Jesus that he made to his disciples. That we would serve and that we would minister, that we would witness in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we would do it with the urgency in which it needs to be done. God, that we'd be used of you to bring people to Jesus Christ, to disciple them, to love them, to fellowship with them, and Father, to fellowship with them for all eternity in your presence, in those glories that you have for us. And for this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.